Thank you for listening to the podcast of Dublin Bible Church. Well, this is a a new mini-series, just a couple weeks long. It's called uh, Worship um, Redefined. And kind of the, the, the backstory of this is one of those things that I think every church needs, and our church needs over this time, um, even a church that is a worshiping church, and you are a worshiping church. By the way, the way that we worship on Sunday is a reflection as to what we've been worshiping Monday through Saturday. And, and you're a worshiping church, but, but there's always this tendency in every group, whether we're worshiping people or we're, we, we don't really have worship down or we're worshiping the wrong things, there's always this tendency for us to drift. And especially when things are going well. Amen? Isn't that the same way like in your, in your marriage where you, you stop paying attention, like everything's going well, so you stop doing the things that you're supposed to necessarily? It's not that you want to, but you just kind of, you just kind of relax a little bit. And then all of a sudden you start to have some, some issues and you start to have, to have to say, you know, I'm sorry and forgive me. You start having to say those things more often. And yet it's when we start to relax is when we start to drift. And it seems like it happens simultaneously. Well, as a church, even as a worshiping church, the tendency is, is even in a church like this for us to kind of just kind of drift and become comfortable and just like, ah, oh, we walk away and we almost start to take things for granted. So what this message and next week's message is a little bit different than the, uh, it's the same topic, but yet it's, it's going to have a lot more personal, you know, personal application than this week. But what I want us to do over this next 40 or so minutes that I speak is that I want us to hit us the reset button. I want us to go back to why is it that we worship? Not necessarily asking the question, what are you worshiping? We'll get to that next week. But hitting the reset button to say, why do we worship and who are we worshiping? And is it worth it? And yet, the, the scripture for this morning is John 4, it's from John 4. And this is one of those, those scriptures, to me, I'm, and this is, if you've been in church for a while, you've probably heard this, um, maybe, maybe even a few times, and maybe if you haven't been in church, or maybe you're just, you know, you're just starting your walk with God, or maybe just coming back to God, I have to tell you, this scripture is going to be such a breath of fresh air for you. And what I really was drawn to this text about is because this passage and what Jesus says to this woman, a woman that it seems like he went out of his way to speak to, what he says to this woman speaks into the vision of our church. Our church exists to help people find direction, to help people find spiritual direction. And us as a church, we try and create environments like this one to where even the most lost person or somebody who's, who's walking with God or maybe somebody who's in between, maybe they're just kind of they're, you know, a little bit skeptic, you know, skeptical of, of Christ and the church and what all that means. We want to be a place that's open for all people. And yet I look at this passage, and it is undeniable that Jesus, he, he just speaks something into us and saying, here is his, Jesus speaking to a woman, and he's helping her find spiritual direction. And she thought she didn't need it. And yet every one of us is either in a place where we are, we're needing spiritual direction right now, whether you know, we're, we're maybe we're just, like I said, we're just kind of entering into this whole thing, what it means to be a Christian. Maybe you're newly saved, or maybe you're not even a Christian yet, and we're all in a place where we can receive from this and what Jesus says to this woman. What he says to her is so refreshing, and honestly, he says the same thing to us. So John 4. It's going to be kind of lengthy, so we'll break it up. 
John 4, starting in verse 1. The Pharisees heard that Jesus was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. That would be John the Baptist. Although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. When the Lord learned of this, he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. So there's this, this issue, this tension that's happening, this setting here. Is, there's this tension, and they're starting to be, you know, like squabble back and forth and say, no, 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 Jesus is baptizing. Did he baptize more than John? Remember, we, we learned about John the Baptizer, and we had that awful video that we played last week, you know? And, and we kind of we talked about John the Baptizer, and now there's this, this little argument to say, no, well, who's baptized more? Was it, was, is it Jesus, or is it John the Baptist? And Jesus says, you know what? I'm checking out. They're making an issue of something that shouldn't be an issue. So he, he avoids or gets away from that whole debate. And yet we see that he lands right smack dab into the place where he needs to be. Verse 4. Now he, Jesus, had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus... Uh, Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well, and it was about the sixth hour. So the, the scripture that's being referenced here is Genesis 33, 18 and 19. This is a location that you could still go to today. So if you're like new to the little Christian thing and you're like, okay, is this all made up? Is this all made believe? You can go to this place. This, this is a literal place even today. And it's a place that's marked out that you could find and yet, you see, Jesus, he, he leaves the debate, and he says, I'm, I'm not going to get into this. This is a petty argument. So he leaves, and he's on his way to somewhere else, but yet he finds himself talking or going through the area of Samaria talking, and now he's going to be talking to a woman as he's sitting by this well. Verse 7, when a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, This is huge, huge, huge. Listen to this. You are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews did not associate with Samaritans. Like this was absolutely taboo in, in their culture. The Jews did not talk to the Samaritans. It's like they would not do it. They would literally, if they were walking down the road, they would get on the other side of the road so they didn't even have to have eye contact with these people. They so hated them. And yet, Jesus, he breaks down all cultural barriers, all religious barriers, all racial barriers. He does all of this. See, their history, this, the history of this had gone back, uh, all the way back to about 727 B.C. So we talk, we're talking about centuries of dysfunction, centuries of hate. As a matter of fact, they, they, when, when they were mocking Jesus, they actually, they would, they would, they would mock someone, and, and a Jewish person would mock someone and call them a Samaritan. And that's what they did to Jesus in John 8, I believe in verse 48. So they're, they're, they mocked Jesus, and, and yet it was just like, it was almost like a curse word to be called, if you were Jewish, to be called a Samaritan. They hated each other. But, uh, and the, the Samaritans were, the reason why there were so many issues, for the, for the Jewish people, their lineage, their genealogy was everything. They wanted to know what line that they had come from, which, which tribe they had come from. Well, the Samaritans, it, was, it all started, like I said, 727 B.C., during the Assyrian uh, 
captivity in, in the empire, just in case you love history. So that's there. And that it, all of it started back in that time frame. And the problem is there was a, a Jewish person that had had relations with a, a Gentile person, and now a whole people group, the Samaritans, were formed. Well, the Jews, like I said, they hated that, because, and they hated even to, to be making reference to them. So Jesus went against the grain of the Jewish culture. He didn't care what people thought. He cut across the racial barrier, across the cultural barrier. You're going to see across the religious barrier. And he goes and has this conversation with this woman that people did not do. And Jesus answered her in verse 10. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked you would, you would have asked him, and he would have already given you living water. Sir, verse 11, the woman said, You have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. How can you get this living water? Does she know who Jesus is at this point? No, she does not. She's still looking for water. Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his flocks and herds? Verse 13, Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, and I think I would say the same, you probably would as well. The woman said to him, Sir, uh, give me this water so that I, will, I, I won't get thirsty and I won't have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You're right when you say that you have no husband. The fact is, you've had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. See, part of the, the consequence of, of the separation between the Samaritans and the Jews is now the, the Samaritans couldn't worship in the same place. So now one of the, one of the things, the, the religious things, the spiritual things that were hated, that the Jews hated about the Samaritans is now the Samaritans, because they were forced to, now they were forced to worship in their own area. So now there was another mountain where they did their worship. And that's what she's making reference to. She's like, yeah, uh, the, the Jews say you worship here, but yet, like, what, what, are you, what are you getting at, Jesus? What are you getting at? What is incredible about this is Jesus meets her right where she is. But he does not want her to stay there. Jesus meets her at this well in her deepest time of need. She didn't even know that she had a need. She is just living her life. She's just doing her thing. Living with the man. She's been married many times before. Jesus meets her right in her dysfunction, but he does not want her to stay there. And I have to just give this word to you. Jesus will meet you right where you are, but he does not want you to stay there. As a matter of fact, he wants to meet you right where you are, right in, if you're sinning, if you're not sinning, whatever, wherever you are right now, he wants to meet with you in a personal way, just as he met with this woman in a personal way. He wants to meet with you, but he does not want you to stay there. He wants you to continue. He wants you to progress. He wants you to grow. One of the biggest problems that happens right here in American Christianity is, is people receive Christ and they stop. 
And they think, now I'm saved, and now they stop moving forward. That is not what Jesus wants us to do. When you follow Jesus, it's more than an interruption to your life. I've said this many times, and I I will say this until I have no voice left. It is more than an interruption to your life. Following Jesus becomes your life. He becomes your rabbi, your teacher. You walk in his footsteps. The amazing thing about Jesus is he allows you to walk in his footsteps even without believing everything that he's ever said. Even without believing that everything in the Bible is true, he allows you to kind of walk in his footsteps. But you have to get past this point of believing in yourself and cross a faith line to where you believe that he indeed is God. And he says, keep walking. That's what he is getting out with this woman. And yet she says, oh, I can see that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this, this is verse 20, our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus declared, believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming, and now has come, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For they are the kind of worshiper, the kind of worshiper the Father seeks. God, His Spirit, and His worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that. I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When He comes, He will explain everything to us. Let me just ask you this. What is she expecting? She's expecting the advent of a Savior. That's what she's expecting. She's like, I know this Messiah, is, this anointed one is coming. We went through the Advent series, and this is what she's alluding to. She's like, I know there's, there's this coming of the Messiah. He's coming. There's an Advent. It's coming. Jesus declares, I who speak to you am he. What he's saying to her and what he's saying to you and what he's saying to me is he's saying, I am the great I am. What he's saying is this. This is a claim all the way back from Genesis 3, I believe in verse 14, where when, when God is having this interaction with Moses... And Moses, is, he's, he's a little bit fearful because God has given him a task and he says, hey, you need to go do this thing. And he's like, no, 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 no I don't think I can. He says, who should I say sent me? And, and God speaks to him. He says, I am. So the, the, the song that we sing, the great I am, this is the declaration that Jesus is the great I am. And that's what he's telling this Samaritan woman. And that's what he's telling you. And that's what he's telling me. He's like, I am. I am. You also see in the Gospel of John that just the, the other, some of the other great I am's that are referenced in, in the Gospels. When Jesus says, I am the way. And he says, I am the truth. I am the life. And he says, I am the vine. That's a claim to his deity. He's saying, I'm God. You don't need to look for someone else. You don't need to expect something else. I am God. I am the great I am. Also, what he's telling her is the location in worship is not nearly as important as our attitude in worship. 
The location in worship is not nearly as important as our attitude in worship. What you do Monday through Saturday is an act of worship. I have to ask you this. What have you been worshiping? It is, it is so obvious, and I, I kind of break this down with some of the band members at the end of, uh, of a Sunday, and we'll come together, and, I can, uh, and I'm, not, I'm not trying to be you know, harsh on you, but there's so many times where I can tell, and now others can tell, those who are leading us, by the way, we have a phenomenal band. And, and, and we can kind of get together, and we can almost gauge the, the spiritual atmosphere in this place. We, we can gauge it. It's like, did they get it? Were they, were they worshiping today? Were they lost today? Did we do our job today? What did we do? Did we, did we get in the, in the way of what God was wanting to do? Or was it, was it hidden sin in people's lives? These are kind of questions that, that we talk about. These are things that we wrestle with. Because I believe that if we would actually understand how the, the depth of, of what worship is, and worship is just giving worth to something. If we would understand that at the deepest level, not only would this experience be better, but I believe that the world, when people who are far away from God would come into a place where there is true worship in spirit and in truth, what Jesus said to the Samaritan woman, I have to tell you, there's nothing else like it. There is no secular concert. There's no, there's no other experience you can have on the planet other than when you come into a place, whether it's this place or another place, the location is not nearly as important as the attitude in worship. But when you come together and you sit back and you're just like in awe of what God is doing, we've all experienced that. We've experienced that here. But it starts with our attitude. The location, not nearly as important. Jesus is saying, you know what? You worship on this mountain, we worship on that mountain, not important, but your attitude is. For you and I, it's our attitude. That's what becomes important, the baggage that you bring into this place. But let's go back. Verse 26, the first kind of takeaway this morning from verse uh, 26, and this is when Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. And this, on your worship guide, there will be a fill-in-the-blank part for this, is Jesus is declaring that he is the object of our worship. Jesus is the object of our worship. Jesus is the, the true object of our worship. We live in, in, a, in a culture where we can worship relationships. We can worship marriage. We can worship our kids. We can worship our work. We can worship our 401k. We can worship material things. We can worship the house that we live in. We can worship how, how we fit in the social strata. I'm upper class, lower class, middle class. There's worship in all of those tiers. And Jesus says, I am the object of your worship. I need to be the object of your worship. He has to be the object of your worship. Has to be. Jesus is bigger than any cultural barrier. So I have to say this, and he's bigger than any racial barrier. I have to just let you know this. Just simply reflect upon this, maybe even in this next week, and you think about all the tension in race and culture and all and the, the religious tension, everything that goes on in our culture right now, even in our city right now, and the brokenness and the healing that needs to take place right now. If you look at the teachings of Jesus, you see that he breaks down all racial barriers. So where do those racial and cultural barriers come from? The fall of man in Genesis 3. They are not from Jesus. They're not. 
This place is, we are a church that is trying to help people find spiritual direction, help people find spiritual direction. It's all people of all walks of life, all ethnicities, all races of all kinds. That's what this church can be. I can't speak for other churches, but that's what this church exists for. This is Jesus' church, not any one person's church, including the pastor of this church. And yet, we, all of us in leadership, whether it's senior leadership at the church, whether it's ministry team leadership, all of us and all of you have to understand and, and just kind of rally our lives around that Jesus is the object of our worship. He's the reason why I, I study for messages. He's the reason why I pray. He's the reason why I confess sin. He's the reason why I repent of sin. He's the reason why I want a quality marriage. He's the reason why I, I use God's word as just the the thing that, to teach and, and really to model my lifestyle for my children around, everything goes back to Jesus being the object of my worship. I don't, I don't, I don't idolize. I don't worship Dr. Phil or Oprah or whoever else it is who would give you good advice. I'm not saying all their advice is bad, but they're not to be worshipped. We should go back to the Word of God for the basis and find the standard of all of our living and our decision-making. Jesus is the object of our Worship. When Jesus was being tempted in Matthew 4, verse 10, when he was being tempted by Satan, we know that he was tempted three times. One of the temptations, this is what he says uh, to Satan. I believe he needs to speak that to some of you. Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. So as there, there's this banter, and if you're familiar with that text, there's this kind of this, this banter where Satan is accusing Jesus, and Jesus goes back to God's word and just boldly declares the spirit, and, and, and just boldly declares just the, the spirit of the word to him. And he says, Here, here's, what you, here's what you're missing. Maybe there's something you're missing. Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. You cannot serve two masters. And yet in Isaiah 42.8, it says, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give glory to another or my praise to idols. He says, I will accept nothing less than your best worship. Nothing less. And he says, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another or my praise to idols. We're going to talk about idols a little bit next week. Things that get in the way of our worship. And yet, there's this, this declaration. Isaiah 44, 6 says this, This is what the Lord says, Israel's King and Redeemer, the Lord Almighty. I am the first and I am the last. Apart from me, there is no God. That should have a ripple effect in your life just hearing that because that word changes everything. This is what the Lord says. Israel's king and redeemer. So much significance in the Old Testament, even going into the, Old Te or into the New Testament with that phrase. The Lord Almighty, the sovereign Lord, says, I am the first and I am the last. Apart from me, there is no God. says, I, I, will, I, I was here before you were, and I'm going to be here after you're long gone. That he reigns. In verse 23, we see 
Another takeaway that God actively seeks worshipers. God actively seeks worshipers. So many of us, we live with the idea that maybe we even, we believe that God existed, but yet we live the rest of our life as if he doesn't exist. Maybe we put our faith in him this this one time at a vacation Bible school or maybe even a church event, and we do all these things, and yet we just have this kind of lifestyle that says, you know what, yeah, I believed on Jesus. That was when I was a kid or when I was a teenager. I'm doing my own thing now. And yet we just kind of, we almost have this this mentality. We can create just just this lifestyle that, yeah, yeah, Jesus exists, but, but it doesn't really matter in my life. But Jesus actively seeks worshipers. He actively, I believe, actively sought out this woman. There's no such thing as a chance occurrence with Jesus. There there was somebody who received Jesus last Sunday after the message. And you know what? It wasn't just like a fluke thing, like, well, I just happened to be here and all of this happened and, you know, everything was right and the lights were right and the message was right and all that. No, that's a movement of God. God orchestrated all of those things because God actively seeks worshipers. But he doesn't want your divided heart. He wants your whole heart. He wants every part of you. He deserves every part of you because he is our, the true object of worship. That's what he longs for. Verse 23, we see this. It says, yet a time is coming and now has come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father, what's the next word? Seeks. That he seeks. God deserves the glory. He desires the glory. He desires all of us to, to, to worship. He desires that. He deserves that. Apart from Him, there is no God. He is Alpha. He is Omega. We see also that God seeks. When, when, when God sought out Adam and Eve in the garden, he, fought, he went to find them. God seeks. He has a history of seeking. He sought after people who were far away from Him. He sought after Moses to do what he was supposed to do. He sought after Abraham to do what he was supposed to do. He sought after Paul in the New Testament. In Acts 9, he sought after Paul because he knew that Paul, his name was Saul, but then changed to Paul. He knew that he was going to have a very significant on the movement of Christ throughout the generation. And largely, we have so much to be thankful for, even churches that are worshiping right now all over this city and in the country and the world right now. We have so much to be thankful for of, of when Jesus invaded Paul's life and changed him because he became the apostle to the Gentiles. So there's a little seed of his ministry in every church that is, does not have a Jewish base. That God sought after these individuals because God had a plan, not just for them, but God has an overarching plan for all of us through all of eternity. After all, He is the first. He is the last. He is Alpha. He is Omega. God draws. We see that in John 12.32. 12, that God draws 
people to himself. That the events of the, of the rugged cross and that, the, the man of sorrows, the song that we just declared, because of the event of that, people are drawn to the cross. They're drawn to it. And it's part of God's plan. In John 12, 32, it says that the God through his Holy Spirit convicts us of sin. It says that in John 16, 8. He convicts us of sin. We start to feel the weight of our sin and our brokenness so that we can't be prideful anymore and we're driven to our knees in humility before God and we're convicted of the weight of our sin and that we realize under our own power we will simply melt. And yet he backs it up with the events of the cross and he says, you know what? That is too much to bear for you. The sins are too much to bear so you don't have to because Jesus already did. He actively seeks worshipers. He invites everyone. He breaks down all barriers. He brought salvation. He comforts the hurting. And God is, and I hope you know this, and this is something that tries, we try and weave through really the, the lifeblood of this to, to show you how relational God is. That He cares about the affairs of your life today. He doesn't just care about you just making this decision for Jesus one time. He cares about you. He cares about your soul. He cares about not just the eternal living water aspect of it. He didn't just look at the Samaritan woman and say, you know, here's, here's a little water. Come back tomorrow. Here's a little water. Come back tomorrow. He says, no, what I offer you, you have to understand, is living water that wells up in you like a spring, and it springs up into eternal life. This is something that would mean so much to her because this is kind of echoes of some other scripture in the Old Testament. Maybe you want to jot these down. I'm not going to go through all of them, but I'm going to tell you the source. This is with Jesus, what he's doing. He's, he's tying some of the Old Testament to himself. And maybe you're a little bit skeptical of the, of the whole Christian thing, the church thing, the Jesus thing, which we understand. But he, he ties some things in. When he says living water, he's making reference to, to some things that were said thousands of years and hundreds of years before. In Psalm 42.1, it makes reference to this living water. Isaiah 55.1, it makes reference to this living water. Jeremiah 2.13, it makes reference to this living water. Jeremiah 17.13 makes reference to this, this water. Zechariah 13.1 also makes reference to this living water. The Samaritan woman w- would have a well-rounded idea of the Old Testament scriptures. So for her, she would look at this living water and the expectation of that there's, there's something special about this living water that represented eternal life. So she was expecting uh, the advent. She was expecting Messiah, the anointed one, the Christ, the Christo. She was expecting that. And when Jesus is showing her, he says, you know what, I love you, I desire you, and yet I want things to make sense for you. I'm meeting you where you are, but I don't want you to stay there. I know you have some basis of knowledge of the Scripture, but I want to help make, some, make sense of things to you and tie the Old Testament to me. Which is what Jesus did in his ministry quite often. The third takeaway is this. Worship, worship is our response to God's otherness. To God's otherness. A.W. Tozer, he said, left to ourselves, we tend immediately to reduce God to manageable terms. We try and reduce Him down to what we can understand. 
But yet we worship not the things that we necessarily can understand. We worship God's otherness, the things that we, that we just have our minds blown about. The idea such as this, that God is unequal in splendor, that He's unrivaled in power. He is beyond compare. In Isaiah 46.9, this should be on the screen. Isaiah 46.9, it says, Remember the former things, those of long ago. I am God, there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me. The next verse says this, I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times, what is still to come. I say my, my purpose will stand and I will do all that I please. That is God's word. Try and put your mind around that. And he says, that's who I am, and I'm going to do whatever I want to do. Don't think that God's cold just because that word's true. We've already said, and we've already showed clearly that God is relational. That God just doesn't exist outside of the affairs of his people. He wants to engage in relationship with his people. That's his desire. He, he, he seeks worshipers. We, we've already seen that in the scriptures from verse 23. And he says, but, but just to understand that my purpose will stand and I will do all that I please. Over Christmas Eve, we, we, we kind of talked about the idea that, that God had this, this purpose. And we see this purpose that's worked in the plan of God all the way through the beginning of creation, all the way up to the time of Jesus. There's this, this purpose that's come through promise all the way through. And that's, I believe, what part of that's being referenced right here. That God is beyond compare. God is unique and matchless. Psalm 50 verse 21 is a really interesting text because this is God scolding people who were getting worship wrong. That they were trying to put God into manageable terms. So this word comes, he says, and you thought I was altogether like you. And you, and you thought I, that, I, that God was like you. He says, you have to understand that He is matchless in His beauty. He is uncomparable in His power. He's unrivaled in every part of Him. We, we can't even, our minds cannot fathom all the aspects of God and all the attributes of God. God is altogether pure. There is nothing on this planet that is altogether pure. We don't even understand this. This is part of God's otherness. But he, expends, he, or he extends some of that purity to us and, and that, that holiness to us. He says that, that he, we can become holy as he is holy through his power. In Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's not a declaration of, of foolish things, that I can do all things. I can throw a football over those mountains. I can do all. I mean, we, we kind of place that in all different things. That's talking about the power, the part of tapping God's power to do more than what you're capable of and more than you can handle. But yet when you have, when you have the, the ability to tap into God's power, you can do more than what you can think of. You can have a joy that's, that's beyond yourself. You can have the power to overcome sin. That's what that's making reference to, not foolish earthly things. God is immeasurable. He is inexhaustible. God is unique and matchless. God exists beyond us. Acts 17 verse 25 says that He, God, is not served by human hands as if He needed anything. Think about that. Does He need me to, to get up and declare this truth this morning? No. 
but he chooses to use broken vessels like me to, to reveal his word to you. He's not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. Let me just tell you this. Many of us, we, we, we ask this question and, and it's almost just become so, have no power. We say, we, we wonder, God, what is your will for my life? And we kind of throw that term around. And then after a while, we don't even know what that means. So then we just say, well, I'll just do my will and I'll ask God to bless it. That's kind of what happens a lot of times. But if we were to kind of reset that mind frame, that idea, and just say, okay, he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. But yet, he wants to use you to work out his purpose. But you know what? If we sit in our sin and we don't do what we're supposed to, he'll find a way around you. He will. Because he's already factored that in too. But how amazing would it be, how great would your marriage be, if you sat down and said, you know what? I'm going to worship God in the way that I love my wife. I'm going to go to my computer screen and I'm going to sit at that computer screen and I may be home all by myself, but the things that I allow to kind of seep in through my mind, into, in through my eyes and my mind and to lodge into my heart, I'm not going to sit at that computer screen and look at things that I ought not to look at. I'm not going to look lustfully upon a man or a woman because I know that every single thing that I do is and should be an act of worship. But the question is, when you're alone at that computer screen and you're doing your own thing and you're looking at those things and you're just allowing that to sift and lodge right into your heart, what are you worshiping? You certainly can't be worshiping Jesus that way. Every part of us. The, the, the times in your life when you feel like, you know what, that person has done me wrong and I'm not going to say a word to them. I need to say and I need to work through the steps of forgiveness, but I'm not going to. I'm going to harbor bitterness. I'm going to go through all the things that Ephesians 4.31 predictably say they're going to happen. Bitterness, rage, anger, malice, slander. Predictable. Yet, when we go through and we don't extend forgiveness and we say, you know what, I'm not going to forgive you. You did that to me. What are you worshiping? What are you worshiping? You're worshiping your emotion. When there's something that you know that God speaks to you and he says, you need to do this, even in a setting like this, or maybe in personal Bible study, maybe it's in just listening to maybe Christian music in, in your car or wherever it may be that the Lord would speak to you. But yet he speaks something to you and he says, you must do this. If you do what he says to do, that is an act of pure and true worship to him. No matter what situation. And one of the areas that we suffer, really, that, that your friends suffer the most, is when God speaks to you to walk across the room to talk to somebody who's far away from God. And God speaks to you and he says, hey... I'm actively seeking worshipers. I want you to do this thing. And when we don't walk across the room and we sit back, and one of the things that, that we so limit the worship of God on is when we're supposed to walk across the room and actually talk to somebody who's far away from God. And in that moment, we're worshiping ourselves. We're worshiping how we look to that person. We're worshiping our emotions. There should be a spiritual response in worship. And I, and I would say this is more just a personal thing. I'm going to kind of fly through some of these. There should be a spiritual response in worship. There should be confession. If you are living a lifestyle of worship, 
Because the location of worship is not as important as the attitude in worship. But your, your lifestyle, you should live a lifestyle of confession before God. Every day, maybe moment by moment, as, as he brings awareness to sin, you should confess that and say, oh, Lord, I, I have failed you. And you should go back because that is a spiritual response to worship, to God's otherness, to say, you are holy and this act means that I am not being holy. You should confess that as sin. And also another spiritual act of worship is repentance. To not just confess it as sin and say, man, I really screwed that up. I'm going to just keep doing it. But to turn away from it. That's a spiritual response in worship. And how you worship Monday through Saturday totally affects how we worship here together. It affects everything about you. And I will tell you this. How you worship Monday through Sunday, Sunday through Saturday, however you want to put it. How you worship affects even your marriage. Let me just for the Christians. Has there been a time in your life to where you were you were on fire for God and, and it seemed like everything was going well? Right? I've been there. And yet there's these other times where Christians, it's like things, it seems like things are kind of falling apart. And now now all of a sudden there's a little bit of friction in my marriage. Now all of a sudden it seems like things are not coming as clearly to me. Now it seems like I pray and like there's this incredible distance between me and God. I have to tell you that is a reflection of what you've been worshiping. And that affects everything, even your marriage, even the way that you love your kids, even your attitude when you go to work. If you were to wake up in the morning, just have an open time of confession because that's a personal side, a spiritual response to the otherness of God, that God is holy and he's calling us to be holy. He's calling us to be set apart and sanctified is what the word in the New Testament says, to be set apart for him. That we should be driven to a time of confession, driven to repentance. We should be driven to a time of prayer. We should have this, this, just this thing in us, that this, this neediness of God saying, I know that I can't do it myself. All of that is an act of worship. But yet, many times we don't do any of those things. Many, of those, many times we don't do any of those things and we come into this place. And you feel the weight of your sin. Maybe it's through a song. Maybe it's through the message. You feel the weight of your sin. And then when we get to the last song, the lights come back up. Everybody starts talking. And nothing changes. And then you find yourself the next Sunday feeling the weight of your sin. And then the lights come back up. And then you leave and nothing changes. For you to be worshiping and changing, it requires for you to ask some other questions whenever God reveals to you sin. That your, your, your response in worship to Him, that when His Spirit is speaking to you, is for you to, to ask some other questions. Say, God, what, it is, what, is, uh, what in me is broken? What, what is it in me? What, what is the sin that I'm harboring? What do you seek to change in me? But if you don't ask those questions, if you just wait until the last song plays, wait until I say amen or whatever we leave on that day and the lights come back and everything resets and everything's great, if you wait for that, you won't be changed. 
You won't be changed. And, and God seeks to change us. He wants to meet us where we are, but He doesn't want us to stay there. That means He wants to take us from here and He wants to change us throughout the course of our life. We don't have it all together. It should drive us to humility. It should drive us to humility. So there's the, the spiritual response in worship. But one of the things that's rarely ever taught in church, and I thought I would just allow this, I'm not going to expand on it a whole lot, but I just want this word to kind of wash over you. There should also, we see scripturally that there's, there's consistently been a physical response in worship. That means within, within the, the community of believers and then also on a personal level, there's this physical response to worship. Some of the words that the Old Testament uses is a word, uh, there are many more, but I've only had five here for the sake of time. The word barak, it means to kneel, to be attuned to his presence. Psalm 95, 6 says this, O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before our maker. And the word kneel is that word barak. It says, let us kneel before our maker. That's a physical response. He says, let us kneel. That it's okay to kneel, to have some physical response in worship. We don't have to worship like this. Maybe like you were told in a past church. That's not what we do around here. Like so many people, they're afraid to do anything. And they feel so bound within themselves. And inside, something's welling up in them. But physically, they stop short and they don't do anything. And Psalm 95, 6 says, Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before our Maker. Let us barak. Let us be attuned to His presence. There's another word, halal. It means to praise or to rave about. I love that, to rave about. Like, I can't stop talking about it. I want to worship God every single day of my life. The way that I love my, my kids and the way that I, I govern my marriage and my relationships, I just want God to, I just want to rave about God and worship God through all things. And that word we see in Psalm 22, verse 23, says, You who fear the Lord, praise Him. And there's a big exclamation point. Praise Him. Let us rave about Him. Let us never get over His worship. Let us never get over His praise. There's another word, shaka. It means to bow down in loyalty or face down or flat down. In Psalm 29.2 it says, Give unto the Lord the, the glory due to His name. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. And that word worship is the word shaka. Let us give unto the Lord the glory due His name. There's another word, todah. It is the extension of hand, the confession, the adoration of God. Psalm 69.30 says, I will praise the name of God with a song and magnify Him with thanksgiving. Like I love that picture of just hands extended just saying, thanks, I can't do anything for you, God. You don't need anything of me. But all I can do is just as a sign of thanksgiving say, take it all. I thank you for everything that you've done for me. Then there's the word zamer. It means to touch the strings of a musical instrument accompanied with voice. To touch a musical instrument, a stringed musical instrument with accompaniment of voice. In Psalm 66 says this, Sing out the honor of His name. Praise His, or make His praise glorious. 
Worship is personal. Worship is communal. Worship is not passive. Worship is active. Worship is not a mood. It it is a response. Worship is not a feeling. It is a declaration. Let's stand. Let us stand to make this, this declaration just as the Samaritan woman found out that Jesus is the great I am. And I'll read that word to you again. When Jesus declared, I who speak to you am He. He is the great I am. He is worthy of our worship. He is worthy of all of these, these, these expressions, the physical expressions of worship. But I want you to know this. Failure in worship happens when we worship the experience in worship and not the, we don't have the proper attitude in worship. So I don't want us to be all about that and all about doing those other things and have a poor attitude. It starts with the spiritual aspect of worship, and it leads to the physical. But if we start with the physical and then go to the spiritual, we have actually done things wrong. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do come to you today. We pray by the name of Jesus, the great I Am, the Alpha, the Omega, the Way, the Truth, and the Life, the Living Water, our Redeemer, our King. And Lord God, as we just sing this song of praise back to you, Know that, God, you don't need anything, but yet you desire praise and worship from us. Let us do it with pure and contrite hearts right now. Let us humble ourselves before you in the honor that is due your name. Amen.